Greetings, adventurers, and welcome to the Mike Flares podcast coming to you today from the Seed of Creation. Uh, my name is Martin. I am your host, and joining me today, as always, is your other host, Connor. How are we doing today, Connor? Buddy, how are things? I'm, I'm doing good. I'm, I'm, as always, really excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today. Um, and... This is my therapy, man. This is where I get out all my thoughts, and I've been <laughs> uh, alone for the last week and a half in my own house. With no one but the cats to talk to, so I've got a lot of thoughts built up. Yeah, there's been some interesting uh, Facebook messages that we've sent each other over the last week and a half. <laughs> <laughs> last night alone, I tried to rewrite Hamilton for the Irish War of Independence. Oh Didn't my! Go well, did not go well. Yeah, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll not mention some 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 rather hilarious mistakes we made, historically speaking. <laughs> I mean, they're kind of grim stuff to like anyone else, but I think yeah. it's because. I think it's a very Irish thing to look at something incredibly grim and be like, "Isn't that hilarious?" Yeah, that that is that is fair. That's super fair. But yeah, oh man, it's um yeah, it's been an interesting week for me as well. Like I've 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 been training for like 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 the last two weeks in uh, jobs. So like my mind has just been going in overdrive in the background on all this D and D stuff. And I sh- I won't I won't go through all of them, but I've some here. I've started a I've kind of figured out my process a little bit more. Like I was telling you off uh, off air. Um, I've uh, for our listeners, I've realized that uh. For some reason, post-it notes seem to be my jam when it comes to prepping stuff for d and I, uh, I set up an office in my house because I'm working from home, and I literally have a wall covered in these. By the way, these were all things that I just wrote up, wrote out, connected to my latest session tonight. There's nine post-it notes worth of shorthand there. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that turned into probably one of my my, my favorite sessions recently, so I'm, I'm still kind of like really uh in a good mood from that um and players seem to have a great time um but yeah what, what about no yourself? high like that uh like that D running high oh i spe- particularly when people figure stuff out on their own like oh man it was great uh, yeah you had you had one of those like the one of those moments where the brain where the i don't know what you call it the the brain cells fire at the same time in sync and, and the player goes oh my god this person is that thing and there's a, a realization yeah it's it, it's pretty cool um we had a at a moment where they were kind of going through an area and uh i it's it kind of, it was a scry and uh, i like the way my mercer matt mercer does scries it's like you it's like that dr strange thing where you're pulled out of your body and your vision shoots like a rapid pace across so i, I like to use that to give little hints to where people are going or what's going on and stuff so they're going through like a three-stage area at the moment before they hit the final boss area and like i can say this because they all know this because they're mostly through it and some very helpful scries um but as part of it they saw this um there's an area that i've based on one of the layers of hell um called maladomini and it's basically like this big ruined city full of slag heaps and, and wrecked fortresses. It was really cool, really ominous. And I was like, oh, that's going in my game. Uh, and uh, one, as they, I, as the when the druid came back from the scry and um, kind of told everybody what he saw, um, I've uh, my blood hunter is proficient in arcana and so is my sorcerer. So I let them do arcana rolls for it. Um, they both, unfortunately, didn't roll high enough initially um because i wanted a pretty high dc from it because like the guy they wouldn't have had any direct experience it was kind of like more like something they would have come across like as a footnote yeah um but they had inspiration because i gave the party inspiration a few weeks ago um for like they role played for like half an hour just without me ever being involved just talking about love their characters that. and stuff absolutely so it was that. like yeah inspiration for you it's just it's it's advantage and it's deserved for what you did uh i managed just so the two of them used their inspiration um to re-roll and try and get it one of them rolled lower the second time but one of them rolled a 22 the second time which is the blood hunter and uh he recognized it and i got to like explain to him i was like this is maladomini and then i could see like 
because we were video playing I could see all the kind of the expressions of my party and they were all kind of like oh weird and then I was like Maladomini and it reads the and uh, I read the description first and I went Maladomini is the seventh layer of the abyss and I just saw one of my players go <laughs> and it was all oh, so satisfying uh, but yeah that that's kind of enough of really what, um, what, I, what I did in my last week uh, Connor we were uh we're talking about like new areas and building new areas. So I think it'd be a cool idea for us to have a wee chat about one of the most important elements of specifically becoming a DM. Just a wee uh, chat. Yeah, just a wee chat. Like, like a like little two or three minute chat and we'll, we'll yeah. end the podcast there. Yeah, we're, sure. we're, we're known for our brevity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and not getting sidetracked at all. But uh, I think it's what probably definitely one of the most important skills you can have for being a DM and it's world building. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I... It, it's a fun process. It's a demanding process. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I think, yeah, it's absolutely. I mean, especially, I mean, if you're playing um, the pre-written games in which, you know, you absolutely can, and you can definitely make those games your own in a lot of different ways um, by changing things or just by filling in some of the gaps that the books don't cover. But to sit down, uh, draw out a map, write a name of a country, a civilization, a history, uh, it's it's honestly, it's a very, it's very satisfying to sit back and go, right, so that's the first and second ages of this country. Uh, I guess I'll do the next part uh, tomorrow night or something, you know. But like, it's it's satisfying to see something really take shape and get filled out. Yeah, I, uh, I just because we're kind of talking about uh, the satisfying elements of world building. One thing I really really like about world building is uh, working out all the links between the countries you make, you know, um, or like uh, maybe you put a mystery in one country that's linked to another. Your party finds elements of that mystery in that country, and then someone just puts it together off the cuff. It goes, huh, and then puts it all together. There's so much satisfaction in that moment of seeing someone figure out a mystery. Um, I, I love that element of world building. I, I, I've, I've been doing a bit recently, so it's kind of what prompted me to think for this discussion. Um, like I said, uh, when my kind of realizing that the post-it note thing for some reason really works for me to get the like creative juices flowing. Um, and I recently uh, redesigned my whole world map, so I'm, I'm in the middle of doing quite a bit of world building right now. And I know for a fact that me and you do it quite differently. Um, and that's a really good thing because uh, obviously it'd be like we're saying last week it'd be boring if you agreed on everything and did everything the same um, and I'm actually a really big fan of how you put together put worlds together I've only seen it from the player side of the screen really for now because for obvious reasons you can't be like hey Martin this next area you're going to man I've put this like giant ape demon in it I can't wait for you to fight it <laughs> But see, I, that's the shit I want. I'm so excited about stuff sometimes when I write them in, like planning sessions or writing these things about the world. And I'm like, oh man, this is a really cool article about this this place. Like, there's maybe this next territory that the guys are going to go to. Well, maybe they won't go there, and I don't want to show them it in case they then feel like I need for them to go there because I don't. I want to be open world. I worry about that so much go. as well. But if you like, I I worry sometimes if I go, hey guys, check it out. I just wrote like this whole article uh, on on World Anvil about uh, this particular province within you know the country you were in and then i would feel like maybe you would feel like you need to go there now because kind of all this work in we have to go there now but i don't, I don't want to like sway you either way <laughs> I, I get that I, I feel a lot of that with my guys as well like um uh when i was uh i redesigned the world up and kind of i i showed it to him before a session and i was like these are the new places because one of my players actually messaged me and been like yo you, you said you're making all these new is there like a cataclysm coming <laughs> i was like <laughs> one i was like Man, I am kind of happy to have inspired that level of ominous dread. <laughs> but uh, <Yeah. laughs> two was like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Um, I'm just like, it was literally a thing where I realized the world was too small for the story I wanted to tell halfway through telling the story. 
But thankfully, my players had only explored like a small part of that. Well, to be honest, they had explored most of it, like two thirds of it. So that's that's kind of when I realized, oh no, I want to fit a bunch of new things in here, and this isn't working. So, yeah. Um, what I think we could would be a good place to start for people. Um, before we jump into like our own processes and stuff, um, maybe some like examples of people we think do world building particularly well. Is there anyone that like jumps to mind for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, like we should we should clarify. We're not just talking about D and D players or dungeon masters. In this case, we we mean people do obviously uh, fantasy writing and stuff like that. It's not all fantasy, but uh, I think a lot of it is. That's that's very much our our bread and butter. Pretty much um, yeah. for me. Um, and it kind of leads into something I was going to say a second ago, but this fits perfectly into it. Uh, George R. R. Martin does some really, obviously, some fantastic world writing. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this little show called Game of Thrones. Um, Is it like anything like this series of books called The Song of Voice and Fire? Uh, no, completely different, and the ending is terrible. I have uh, no idea. So. <laughs> I'm going I'm to retract that. I'm going to retract that. That is not how I feel because I feel like we'll get so many downvotes from certain people if we say that. It's um, it's it's 2021. You're not going to get called out for saying the end of game of thrones is pretty shitty <laughs> <laughs> i feel like there's some debate on the topic and i think there's good and bad I, I genuinely do think there's good and bad points for it uh but no i feel like uh the world building george R. R. martin does is fantastic uh for me for one reason um and well not for a lot of reasons but one that comes to mind is that and in a, in a kind of very tolkien-esque way actually he writes more than he needs to mm. uh, and if you got it ah, scribble that shit down you know but he writes more than he needs to. Like there's parts of um, his world that he has very, very unique, very interesting. Bear um, Island. Uh, Bear Island's even just one of them. Go to Essos. There's so much weird shit in Essos. Or further south. I can't remember the name. Uh, Continent to the further south, where like there's Ashai? a. Is it Ashai? Is it Ashai? Is Ashai not to the far east? It's been so long since I've actually looked at a map of uh, Westeros. I probably should have done that for today, to be honest, which yeah. is a bit embarrassing. Uh, I think, but no, it's, uh, I'll see if I can bring it up here now in a minute. Um, but there's a there's a place in the far south where um, no one that, but the locals can live there because there's like basically mosquito-like insects that if they, if they sting someone from the, that is from there it's like oh it'll itch for a little while that's fine if it's things someone who doesn't they will die within minutes because it's so toxic to these to anyone who isn't local to this island um there are places where butterflies are like carnivorous mm-hmm. and will eat you alive if you land on the island um there's islands where oh there's one set it's kind of more to the west it's like south of essos and it's a string of islands with these a few different kind of civilizations, like two or three little miniature civilizations on them. And they make bows out of this special kind of wood, but it makes the bows like insanely strong. Like they've got an incredible draw strength. And everyone on the on this series of islands are like insane archers. And like it's basically like being hit with a small cannon in the form of a bow. Um, but the wood is just made up in such a unique way, and it only grows on this series of islands. Um, there's also stuff that, that like history of like uh what's this uh, uh valeria and uh and volantis mm. um and what's what are the the water people called again the the roinar um yeah and like that i've i've read the the lore book for this our world of ice and fire it's really really good but then the stuff about the roinar is insane they had people talk about valeria and their fire magic and their dragons the roinar had water magic that was that was like the only thing they were like one of the few people able to resist uh, Valyria because they were like uh, Valyrians were like fire. They were like water. Yeah, deal type with it. advantage, man. 
Yeah, exactly. And like the dragons, they were like drowned dragons in the river Rhoynar. They got all their magic from this river. Um, but that's, that's never mentioned in the shows. And I don't even know that it's brought up in the books all that much. But like, and they never go, like these, these people are gone. Their kingdom, their civilization has been destroyed. Um, there's like the Shadowlands of Ashai, which are, you know, referenced, but you never see. Mm-hmm. On northern parts of Essos, there are like, I want to say there's like half animal people. Oh, there's people with wings somewhere on like northern Essos. There's literally, they're humans, <laughs> but they have wings and they can kind of fly. But like, again, if you just watch the show, you're yeah. like, no, no, it's fairly, it's fairly low magic, blah, blah, blah. But no, there are some utterly, utterly strange places in the world and he did not need to write them because they never come up in the story, but he did. And I love that. It makes I, the world seem bigger than what it is. 100%. It makes it feel like a, like a living, breathing world. Um, and I think that's a, re- I think that's an element of like a, always, I think that's always present as an element of like a really well-built world is that it feels like if you were to take the main cast out of it, things would still happen. Exactly, yeah, because like even even though like the actions of Jon Snow and whatever else in Daenerys Targaryen seem like they're huge, and they are, they're massively impactful. If you look at where Slaver's Bay is, and where the three uh, cities that surround Slaver's Bay are, and all the stuff to, that Daenerys did while she was on Essos, you're like, that's one tiny little neighborhood in Essos, which is actually an enormous continent. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, really, again, she did a lot, but she did a lot in three cities in this one bay on the southern side of the continent. Other than that, life continued elsewhere, you know? Yeah. Jon Snow uh, united the North uh, against the, the White Walkers. Guess what? The North is pretty damn small compared to the rest of Westeros and then the, all of Essos and everything else that exists out there. I was going to say, that didn't even make it to King's Landing until, he, like, like in the show now. Um, that didn't even make it to King's Landing um, properly until he brought, like, literally a, a living white there. Um, so like I think uh, a thing as well to account for um, and it's something to think of when your players are doing like big impressive stuff stuff and getting to the mid-tier levels is the renown system in D&D and um, you know you're you're meant to pick up like people are starting to figure know who the who your party is and their group and their deep they're like what they've done and people they have to feed and that kind of stuff but you got to account for how slow information travels yeah I, I, I like honestly in a lot of other fantasies people tend to just know things because mm. it's you know where it travels but in game of thrones they do not like there's definitely people in all the slaver cities and in uh, plenty of people like in essos and stuff like that who have zero clue what is going on in westeros they they don't know what whites are they don't even really probably even know that there's they might be like oh i think there's like some sort of metal throne but i i, I could be wrong about that i think it's made of bronze or something i don't know i'd imagine um, they would know the iron throne but like very much like like you're saying, they probably like know the Iron Throne, but they've never been to King Land- King's Landing. They, they just care they about who sits on it. They yeah. don't know who sat on a prior. Uh, they don't know who's you know with this political structure or anything like that, uh, because the world is just so so vast. And the same for people in Westeros. Most of the people in Westeros live and die their entire lives in Westeros because there's a whole political thing going on there, and, and they live lives and they get married and they they go to war and the civil wars and uprisings and all this, and all that happens without anyone from the outside influencing them. And without them influencing anything outside Westeros. Mm-hmm. Uh, and same thing with Lord of the Rings as well, you know. Uh, just very quickly, I did bring up an interactive map here of, uh, oh, of George R. R. Martin's world. Uh, Sother, uh, Sother, Sother, uh, uh is the southern continent. Um, it's it's near where, like, Narth and stuff. Wait, is the wait, sorry. Well. Hang on, hang on. What? Southros and Westeros? Uh, it's, you know what it is actually it's basically the word south it's s-o-t-h-o-r-y-o-s yeah south south euros yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. west euros and then that, that is there is the, there a, a north euros and east euros as well? uh the s-o's is just east euros yeah, yeah. Uh, 
And then the Summer Isles or Summer Island mm. is where those bow, uh, bowmen are from. Uh, George, you're great, but that feels a little lazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but hey, do you know what? People yeah. can accept it. Oh, no. I'm trying to find this other place here. It's basically the, the Dothraki Sea is one place. Mm-hmm. But then if you go like even past the Red Waste and... It's only, I don't even think it's listed on this map, is it? I basically watched a huge uh, lore video thing on YouTube of this guy one time, and he was just going like, he 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 went like, here's Essos, and here's like all the the free cities on the western coast of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, now here's like the Doth or the Dothraki area. Now here, I did separate videos and all of them. But once you get past, there's a set of mountains that appear near the Red Waste, and they're not labeled on this map, which is annoying. But basically, they're kind of like, no one passes them. Because there's like a Dothraki-esque people. Ooh, I just remembered another one. Sorry, I'm going to real ramble here. I'm going to stop in a minute. There's a, beyond this set of mountains, further to the east of Essos, I think beyond the Red Wastes, there is a set of people that are kind of like Dothraki-ish in nature, but the climate's a bit colder, so they don't, they have, they wear a bit more furs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, and they ride zebras. They don't ride horses, they ride zebras. It's really cool. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Just to touch on probably, probably my favorite thing, um, as in places you get told about in the Song Voice and Fire books, but don't ever, well, to date, haven't seen. Um, the Isle of Skagos is uh, one of my favorite places that they, that, that I've heard of. Um, if I'm remembering it rightly, I think they say they say that there's unicorns on Skagos. I know the name Skagos. I'm actually looking for it on the map. Right? <laughs> I, knew, I knew you were. I could see your yeah, eyes. Yeah. <laughs> you know me. I love, I love yeah. my maps. Um, but, yeah, like, yeah exactly. I, but that's the stuff. I, like, they, pro- they will probably never show a unicorn in the show. Well, they don't mm. have it in the show. Probably never come up in the books. But just kind of knowing that there is this faster world out there, yeah. it kind of makes you it makes you more curious and it lets your mind run rampant, which I think is an important thing. You know, like oh, I'll often do that where I'll write something or maybe I wouldn't even write it. Maybe I'll just have it in my head. But you guys will ask me, like, oh, is there any place like this in the world? And I'll have a, a vague lore in my head. And I'll go, yeah, actually, across this ocean, uh, in these mountains to the northern part of the continent, there is this, uh, there's a sect of monks who study blah, blah, blah. And I don't think we'll ever go there. <laughs> but I like you guys knowing that there's weird shit out there because it yeah. makes the world seem bigger. Yeah, totally. Um, a, a thing that I actually just want to add as an addendum is that before we maybe move on to chat about someone else uh, and how, how they build, how they do world building well, uh, it's a thing I remember hearing from... You played Dead Space, right? Oh, yeah. Do you remember Peng? Peng? There would be just... Which, po- which game? There, uh, all of them. It's in every Dead Space game, I think. But if you if you... It's just as you're going around the world... There will be like posters on the wall, and it'll just be. I think it's it's just like this. I think it might be like a woman with like a, a drink can, and it just says "peng" on the top of it. And the entire time, like I only noticed because I was watching uh, Jesse Cox do a playthrough, and every time we saw it, he'd be like, "Hey, peng," and it's actually where I heard it from. He spoke to the developers, and what they said was that so in something like Dead Space, where it's very fantastical, um, they put in something like peng which is just like a rant. It, it has no real meaning. It's just like an in-world advertisement, essentially for an in-world product. And you never... So don't know what the product yeah, is? No, like it's it's like a, an ad for like a drink or something. Um, oh, but okay, like cool, you, cool. But like you never you never come across it other than those posters. Um, you never you never even like get a can of paying or whatever it is. But they said that they put it in there because in a world like Dead Space where it's so weird, so fantastical, so out there, to get someone to buy into that as a reality and improve immersion, put something like a Peng poster in, where it's just an element of the world that you don't even necessarily interact with ever, but it's yeah. just a sign that there are things outside of your character happening. 
that's uh, that's kind of almost a, a very interesting um, other side of the coin. Like I, we were talking about other fantastical things that exist in the world, and that can make your world seem big. But there's also super super grounded mundane things that you can be like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a soft drink, or uh, I don't know something very simple like in this country they use swords shaped like this. Yeah, because um, that's a legit thing. Yeah, or people in this country wear a lot of this color clothing because this is a berry or something that's readily available, and that's why they wear a lot of maroon-colored clothes, you know? Yeah, um, totally. That's why blue yeah. is one of the most expensive colors um, in the world for a lot of uh, early a lot of early history. Exactly. Because yeah. you had to get lapis lazuli to make it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that's it's stuff like that that can be very, uh, very grounding. And, yeah. And peng, things like peng or, or stuff that's like, again... I think I had one like that in, in our first campaign. There was the Iron Blood Dwarven Whiskey. Yes, yes, yes. That always showed up, yeah. That showed up every now and again, which I felt like was... I think I came up with that on the fly. Um, it's not the most creative name either. but uh, Yeah, but you believe it as a Dwarven Whiskey. Yeah, yeah. And you guys, like, I think I'm pretty sure anywhere you guys went after that to like, it'd be months and months, even a couple of years later, yeah. you guys would go to other cities, you go to a bar, and they have you got any iron blood? And the bartender be like, yeah, of course we do, because yeah. it's the most popular whiskey on the continent, you know? Uh, Mercer is a very similar thing. Um, In early campaign two, they're always like getting, was it like trusts or trusks or something like that? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a Zemnian thing. It's like a, a trust. I can't uh, remember. A, tr- a trust, I think it's called. Yes. Yeah. yeah that, it's, it's that thing. It's like, like a, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, speaking of Mercer, he's another one I would um, I would say has fantastic world building. I think anyone who's watched the like even like a, a short amount of critical role, it becomes pretty apparent. The dude really puts effort into his cultures, his places, his countries. Um, and like uh, when I was thinking about him, one thing, I was particularly thinking that he does very very well. Insanely detailed descriptions. Like I remember in campaign one, he was describing someone play a fiddle. And I could literally like see the scene perfectly in my head with a spotlight and every like and I think it's actually like the first episode of Campaign Two he describes um a circus performance. And I was like, nothing of consequence really happens for most of that circus performance. It's just a circus performance. But it's a perfect element of world building and it's described so well. I was glued to the screen and could see it all so perfectly. And I think as well another thing he does is it's so well detailed that like I'm not going to spoil it, but there's a plot thread from campaign one that they don't re- uh, that they don't resolve until yeah. 25 years later, and like it, what, yeah, like, it pays off in campaign two, like, and that's like 50 odd episodes into campaign two, and that happens completely by chance. <laughs> like, yeah, that's oh, the, yeah, exactly, yeah, um, like it's, that's yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Sorry, yeah, no, it's absolutely. It, it's very much like it's like here's. I think I think that can be done retroactively, and I will I will 100%. sometimes do it retroactively. Where I'm like, hey, I left this thread open before. How can I tie that back into what we're currently doing? Which can give you a good feeling of, uh, it gives you a great feeling of, oh my god, that that thing that we passed months ago that was like a total throwaway thing is actually super relevant. Yeah, uh, and it kind of I think that really empowers players to think it ma- it makes the world feel connected. Things aren't disjointed. You know, uh, people know each other. Uh, it's very it's very easy to be like we're in one town okay we're done all the quests here let's go to the other town and then it's almost like starting an entire new campaign because you're kind of leaving most things behind mm-hmm. but if things carry over or people in that new in that new town go oh you came from there my cousin such and such runs the tavern you know like it feels yeah. knitted together so so fluidly there was a great one i saw recently i think it's is this taking is it taking 20 
um the D and it's it's I'm not I, I I I'm not subscribed to him at the moment um but I I watch a Darad Darad video but he had a really great one um recently I think or it might have just been I stumbled upon it on YouTube recommended but he was yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> to, to be a bit like ungenerous to the man he's a really good channel he does really good content but he was talking i, I, I just want to get a visual on him like, yeah he's a guy with the yeah yeah he's like sandy blonde hair um and he usually yeah, has exactly, a cool yeah. cg background i'm trying to think of his name i know his name because he's always even uh the guys at uh, xp to level three um they always they do videos back and forth where they argue with each other but it's all like good fun but they kind of like do counter videos to like yeah it's like such and such a response to this person and it's meant to be like kind of a joke like hey I, shut up you're wrong kind of thing i think i'm not i'm, I'm de- i think i'm definitely confusing the channel but anyway the the video it was a really great video where he talked about and I, I, it'll tell you and i promise uh okay. but he was talking with like one thing i took from critical role um and like his experience it was i think it was like an opinion video on critical role how matt runs things and one thing in particular that he adapted from matt's campaign and one thing that he did adapt and he was like this might be a bit controversial, but and it's not something I would have normally done. But it was the magic item shop, and he had a really cool spin on the magic item shop, and it will relate to world building in just a second, I promise you. Okay. Um, <laughs> so he was talking about how Matt had a magic item shop, and a lot of DMs are afraid to do that. It's something that I've scaled back as well. I did it at the start, and it introduced some problems, and just my own fault really, inexperience as a DM. Um, but what he was saying is that what he's done now is basically in every major city. On in like in his world, there will be one of these shops, and it's like a specific family. And what it is is they're almost like I think it's been a while since I watched it, but I think the concept was they're basically there's this extremely rich family that were like adventurers or wealthy landowners or monarchs mm. at some point, and they've they have assembled like a, a massive collection of like magical items, magic paraphernalia, just through being a wealthy family that has adventures and stuff like that. And over the course of time, they decide that they're going to start selling off some of these items. So what they do is they open up like pristine, really high level, like magic item retail shops. They have a select amount of items in there. They're kept behind a really powerfully protected um like glass case or like there's or like when you come in there's like like there's like a jewelry shop there's like a glass counter but each counter just has a card with the name of the item and what it does on it and you tell them what item what item you want and they open like a they open like a big safe door in the back behind another safe door so that the person doing this is protected and like almost like a bag of holding reach in say the name of the item they pull it out they come out they sell it so the items are never actually physically on like uh, in the shop he was yeah. his whole thing was he wanted to make them and logically think about it but also protect it from players who are naturally going to want to try and steal from the magic item shop yeah well that's where glyphor warding comes in yes and fireball <laughs> and fireball <laughs> uh but yeah that, uh, that was an interesting idea though it was yeah I, I thought it was a really i actually nearly immediately put it into my campaign i heard it was like, that's such a good idea like of course because like like familial trade lines are a thing like people are named Cooper right now because someone way back in their family made barrels. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all the kind of name origins. Cooper, like Fletcher, Butcher, Butcher, yeah. Baker, Candlestick Maker. <laughs> I purposely didn't say it, uh, but yeah, no, that's um, that's actually very interesting. That actually ties kind of in what we were talking about last week in terms of making you know magic item availability yeah. and stuff like that. Feel free to check out our previous episode of the podcast. Indeed. Um, um, but yeah, no, that's 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 really good world building because I think yeah. it's something you know, people struggle with sometimes is is how to implement magic in a way that doesn't break your game mechanically. Yes. And, stuff. and again, feel free to check out our last episode. We talk a lot about that. Um, 
yeah but yeah i think uh, that's that's solid world building though having like building actually that's a, that's, a, that's a kind of a good point in baking mechanical features of your world into the world building itself you know so it's not just like hey we're doing this this way because of a rule i want to you know enforce as a dm mm-hmm. uh but you know i we're doing it this way because hey actually there's this war a long time ago and now you can't get magic items readily available because they're really tightly regulated and stuff like that and blah 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 uh, i think i did this in our first campaign where i didn't want it to be a thing where because the the rogue could already do a shit ton of damage with sneak attack and i didn't want him to get his hands on poison super easily so um if ever he were looking for poison in a town, it wouldn't always be available because you can't just go selling poison over the counter like that, yeah. you know. But that was that was me trying to stifle him having even more d sixes on a, on a given attack, um, and instead, you know. But I mean, he was still able to do it, but it's just it wasn't as as readily available. And I think yeah. working them into the world, it kind of justifies them to your players as well. Mm-hmm. If it's like this is a rule, but it's a rule because blah 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 blah. Here's some lore as to why it's a rule. Yeah. Um... Yeah, no, that's like I think all that is like super, super, really um important to think about, um and particularly the melding of mechanics. It's very much a two birds one stone thing. If like if you want to limit magic items and not have it feel like cheap or feel like it's just you, like if you write a good lore reason that makes sense, your players are like yeah, something. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you can actually do a lot of stuff like that uh, just by baking it into into the into the hard lore of your of your world. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, just yeah, in. Mercer, in Sorry, Mercer does a lot of yeah. So I, I was trying to bring us back on track because <laughs> I know we were talking about Mercer a second ago. Um, I do really enjoy his world building, uh, particularly. I'm really, I'm, I'm at the moment reading through his. Uh, <clears throat> pardon me. I'm at the moment reading through his uh, his uh, Explorer's Guide to Wildmount book, um, which is really really interesting. Like they they go through like pretty much every single settlement. Uh, one thing I think uh, Matt does, which I really enjoy, is that virtually not not all, virtually no settlement or area in his world gets like how, how do i put this a light touch uh well i would say yeah absolutely but i would like one thing is like he is if you just build up it like I, me i when i'm building a world I, I tend to start off fairly mundane and i do a couple different passes uh so i'll do like here is the map okay now populate the map with cities and places like that based on where i think people would settle and then i, I find like my third maybe even my fourth pass is right I want to make these places magical, you know, because it's a and D world. Um, I want I want them to be interesting and, and unique. And I find that I do that maybe on the third, maybe the fourth pass sometimes. But that's something Matt does really, really well. Where he's like, here's just a small farming settlement. Like there's one example of in um in the Explorers Guide to Wildmount, where it's a little dwarven settlement in the west of the Empire. Um the Dwendalian Empire. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's basically just a bunch of hills and they have little little houses dotted around and loads of farms and they're kind of those um, those like uh, Asian style farms where they're like uh, tiered and they have the different yes. pools of water and stuff. Um, that's, that's at least the illustration anyway. Uh, but one thing that he has, and this would just be a super normal settlement of collection of farms otherwise, there is a specific type of silkworm in that region and if you make it like regular clothing any old shirt or or pants or anything like that out of the silk that these things spin it, you get a plus one ac because it's like Very a true. really it's like a magically almost like mithril it's kind of like a hard silk um and i'm like that's that's it's such a small thing but instantly that collection of farms went from being 
oh, it's a bunch of arms, whatever, to, oh, there's a specific resource that can give you more armor, so it's got a mechanical benefit, and also it's got a magical thing, because it's a magic silkworm that only exists in this part of the world. And just stuff like that, like, is, is really, it elevates any mundane situation, any mundane settlement to, oh, yeah, well, it's super normal other than this thing, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, I think I think I'll just touch on my touch on just one more person. I think does um world building really well. Um, well, I, I'm gonna say like one point one point five because I'm gonna sum one up in one sentence and then I'm gonna go into another. Um, I think it's fairly uncontroversial to say that George R not George R. Martin, goddamn RRs JRR Tolkien. Too many R's. Yeah, that, that's when you know you've become a, a proper fantasy writer is when you get your RRs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think uh, I think you're overworked, Martin. You should probably take some R and R. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be leaving now. <laughs> I I was trying to not lean away from the mic, and then you said that, and I just wanted to be as far away from those words as possible. <laughs> um, I, yeah. uh, I got a, a lovely image in my head there of Gavin listening to this later on and just going, "Oh fuck's sake!" <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Um, the podcast taking 10 minutes to walk away and collect himself and then coming back. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think with Tolkien, right, he is basically the daddy when it comes to world building. But I think he's also, he's also the daddy of probably doing too much world building. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I say this as someone who's has a massive Lord of the Rings tattoo that covers literally most of the top half of my left arm. I love yeah. I love J.R. Tolkien. I absolutely love Lord of the Rings. The man went into a little too much detail, in my opinion, <laughs> just a tad. And that's the only criticism I'd really have of his work. Otherwise, I think he's phenomenal and like my top three favorite authors of all time. But yeah, you don't need to go into the... If you're if you're a Tolkien fan and you want to start writing a D&D &D world, because I know what happened to me, you don't need to be intimidated by the level of detail he goes into. Definitely take inspiration from it. There are things he does that yeah. are phenomenally well. The lineage is the links of it, but you don't need to go into that level of detail for yourself. Have Take inspiration from it, but don't directly copy his method, is what I would say. Uh, uh, no, definitely not. Actually, if, I, I can't remember if I brought this up last week. I don't think I did. Um, but I have a very interesting point about that. And someone else actually ties in with someone else um, I think you were, you were planning on mentioning as well. Okay. Um, I, 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 I think you'll probably be right there, but go ahead. Uh, well, this is, uh, the other person that ties in with is, uh, well, she two people, but Rothfuss. Um, so Patrick Rothfuss. Um, mm -hmm. We won't go into, into, into the detail of his world too much. He does some really good world building. I really enjoy it. Um, but um, there is this really just in, on the vein of be inspired by him. Mm -hmm. Don't try to replicate him. Yes. Um, I think that's a good general tip as well for yeah. Oh, yeah, writing. Yeah. If you're writing a character, if you're creating a world, if you're creating anything else, be inspired by something, but don't lift it directly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And don't copy um, someone's faults. Yeah, yeah, because they, they, the thing is, if you just try to copy one-to-one -one something someone has done, uh, you're going to pick up the faults that they see on their own work. Maybe you mm -hmm. don't see them, but they see it. Um, and by all means, we're not saying result. we are better writers than any of these people. These people are definitely better no, writers no, no, than no, the both no, of us. No, 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 no. But uh, it's just a thing, because I fall into it as well, because when I first started building my world originally, I was trying to do the Tolkien thing, where it's like thousands of years of history and lineages and all of this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. And it just killed my enthusiasm for it, because I couldn't do it as well as I wanted to do it. So I just needed to take a break and find my own way. And I think that's the most important thing with world building as well, is to take inspiration, mm -hmm. but to find your own way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and on that note, there is this Comic-Con panel 
where George R. R. Martin is there and Patrick Rothfuss are on. And oh, I, I thought it was a different one. I thought it was the one with Stephen King where he asked him how he writes so fast. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> no, uh, it's, it's honestly, it's one of my favorite. I love watching clips of Patrick Rothfuss. I think he's just a very clever person. He's a and phenomenal he, yeah. speaker. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he has, he has such great things to say. He says the best things. He's all the best words. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he does this, he's sitting next to George R. R. Martin. And he talks about um, why why fantasy writers um, always include maps in the world, and uh, uh, he says, "Well, because Tolkien did it. Well, why did Tolkien do it? Tolkien did it because he actually had a map in the story. In the Hobbit, there is a map that the dwarves show to Bilbo, and they're like, look, here we are, and here's the Lonely Mountain. We're going to go there.'" And they reference the map regularly. They they talk about it throughout the entire book, where they're like, "Yeah, we're going to go," and they, they're constantly checking the map, uh, and it's a big deal. Uh, now, of course, George R. R. Martin comes in and has a, a quip about, well, I would say it's probably best to have a map so that people know where the hell they are. I don't disagree. Uh, me, I love a good map. Um, yeah. And that's completely right. But then uh, Rothfuss kind of says, Rothfuss agrees and also says um, that Tolkien did a lot with languages. He was uh, a linguistics professor. He was a linguistics professor, exactly. So he was a professor of linguistics and he wrote actual full breath languages for his world uh fictional languages but he created them in a way that a language would naturally develop <coughs> as connor chokes on whatever is going on over there <laughs> oh you're liter literally choking on your words i'll take over from now um, sorry what was the last thing you said before you died <laughs> Uh, I can't remember. I'm dead now. <laughs> okay. Uh, we were talking about um, Pat Roffice and George R. Martin and maps and including uh -huh. maps. Um, and uh, I, th I think what I thought of while you were saying that is I think a, a great reason to include a map in a book in particular is it gives you an idea of where you are physically. And it allows you to put yourself in the shoes of that character. And with The Hobbit, because you mentioned The Hobbit in particular, um, they, like you said, they spend that whole book looking at that map until they make it to the Lonely Mountain. And I thought it's all about a journey and yeah. the journey's on the map. Exactly. And in particular as well, like, there's two elements that they need to be able to complete the journey. It's the map and the key. And like, they're such big elements. So of course, naturally you do. And there's also a great thing. I don't know. I don't know the term for it in, in like fiction that isn't video games, right? But in video games, there's a term called um, ludonarrative dissonance. And it's a real, it's a mouthful, but it basically means where the mechanics of the game functioning breaks the immersion. So you want to avoid something like that when you're build when you're building a world, and it's what the Hobbit does really well is that you have the map and the whole thing is centered on a journey, and it's Bilbo, and it's told from Bilbo's perspective. And having a map in a book where it's a, a perspective of a main character on an events allows you to more fully put yourself in that character's shoes. I think, in particular, with the yeah, Hobbit. I get, I get what you're saying. Yeah. So because Bilbo regularly checks the map you also regularly check the map mm -hmm. as a reader and that lets you fall into the role of the, the, the protagonist you're following far easier. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Exactly. So that's a very interesting term. Uh, Ludo-narrative ludo dissonance. Ludo uh, is the, I believe, Latin for play. Narrative narrative dissonance is a, a dissonance uh, between the two. Yeah, perfect. That's really good. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, but sorry, the, the thing before I started uh, joking to death, um, the thing I was saying about Rothfuss, he, after talking about the map, he moves on to talk about... Um, Tolkien being a, a linguistics professor and writing languages and then how some people feel obliged to invent languages for their world um, and Rothfuss says 
Basically, what he says is you don't need to do that, though. He did that because he was a Lungit 6 professor. This was his day job. You know, he was right. He was studying languages anyway. Might as well throw one together myself, you know? Not yeah. that it was something he did easily. I'm sure it was kind of a complex process, but, but he also it's something just, he was passionate about. But he even just developed languages for fun. He didn't, like the ones he didn't Definitely. put in Lord of the Rings. He, uh, he, was, um, he translated Beowulf. I have his translation of Beowulf. It's really good. Um, like he just did that for the crack. Like the, the Beowulf translation was just something he did as a side project. Um, and I think you can see that academic linguistic background in how he built his world. Like, look, I love Tolkien. I I try with the Cimmerillion. I really try. <laughs> you, like, I'm going to say, like, look up the things you're interested in and then find them in the Cimmerillion and then read those passages. That's how I did it. Because otherwise, it's like re- reading the Bible from front to back. No, yeah, exactly. You, you, you just cannot possibly read that thing from front to back. It's way too dense. Yeah, just it's do what great, I do. Yeah. But it's, it, again, we said it already. Tolkien is the classic, uh, the narrative went too far. He wrote too much for his world. <laughs> and like, the good thing about Lord of the Rings is that while he did create such a big world and the Hobbit in particular, like the stories he tells within that world don't get too far into that. It's when you like this, his storytelling for the world he's made is great because he doesn't get too much into and son was the son of this and the son of that and the great grandfather of this. Um, he gets very into that in Cimmerillion, um, which like actually Cimmerillion probably a really good book to read at sorts of just to get an idea of his world building. There's some really cool things in there like the um. The Fall of Gondolin and just um, Morgoth. And, and I actually drew an awful lot of inspiration from Tolkien's um, creation myth for um, my godly creation myth. Because in his one, he has Eru Iluvatar, the, 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 like, um, the creator of all. And then there's Morgoth, who's like almost like a Satan figure, who's like one of the Maiar, who are like angels. And they sing the song of creation. Everything that exists in Middle-earth was sung into being by these creatures. Um, and Morgoth corrupts that song then. Um, I, I actually drew a ton of inspiration from that um, for what I was doing when I was building my Pantheon specifically as part of my world building. Um, to go on to someone else, I, I, we only, I only meant to talk about Tolkien I, for like a sentence. <laughs> I, I do actually have, I, I, didn't, I didn't quite get to wrap up what I wanted Oh, to sorry. Go on, Connor, no, please. Cause, this is more because I trailed off. Um, but okay, so he talks about how Tolkien was a linguist, therefore he included languages in his book. Um, Patrick Rothfuss, uh, you read his books. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he includes really intricate details about currency because he he's big into currency. He likes coinage and minting and stuff like that. Uh, I would say I, I was going to make a joke about him being here. He loves money, uh, but the, you know uh, <laughs> that third book would disprove that. <laughs> exactly. If he really just wanted money, he would have released that damn book by now. Would have cranked um, it out. But uh, but no, I mean uh, it's like he he loves coinage. He loves minting. He loves the 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 idea of running currencies and why currencies are different. And he has dozens of different coins and they're not just called a one, two, five and 10 pence mm-hmm. piece. Yeah. They're yeah. Called a, mar- a mark and a jib. And they have all these unique names. They have um, like an, usually I, have like an official name and a slang name as well. Exactly. Yeah. It's not just, he has multiple names for each thing. It's like a, in Canada, they call her ones and twos. Uh, loonies, loonies and toonies. Yeah. 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 But, but he has stuff like that, which is super interesting. Uh, and even like he has multiple currencies, like some are not accepted in certain countries in his, in his world. Mm. Because he loves currency. He loves that all that stuff. That's why he put a lot of effort into it. So a tip I would probably say for world builders is find something like that. It can be anything at all that you find interesting and work it into your world. If you like languages, write some interesting languages for your world. You know, base a lot of stuff around that. If you like currency, make your currency super unique. If you like maps, include a very detailed map. But I find l- something that 
that you already like that isn't going to be extra work for you because if you enjoy it it's not work so find something you already enjoy work it into your world absolutely i love mythology so the gods are super prevalent in my world there you go absolutely you love mythology so when you when you sit down to write your own pantheon it just comes to you because you really enjoy that stuff right like i won't say it was that easy it took, it took about three or four goals no, but yeah. I know, but, yeah yeah it wasn't, it, it yeah. wasn't a 10 minute job um, but, uh, but, but it, you know it's it's it makes the whole creative process far more enjoyable when you work in something that's already uh, inherently enjoyable to you absolutely and um one final person I want to talk about is people who I think I thought we did it well before we kind of went to like more about like how we do it. And we've kind of done touched on that a little before. We might weave it in while we're talking about it. But it's yep. uh, it's someone I thought about. It's You're going to hear his name from pretty much anyone who is into fantasy and it's Brandon Sanderson. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I read Mistborn and absolutely devoured it. I think I read the entire series in like two weeks. And he immediately shot up to be one of my absolute favorite authors of all time. And a lot of that. So I'm, I'm clear. Metal, Mistborn is the metallurgist one, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a it's cool. a series where um, people in the world have magical abilities that are based around the ingestion of metals, and each of those metals has a specific effect, um, uh, both passively and actively. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's not very very cool magic system. Any magic system Brandon Sanderson does, I would highly encourage people to just check it out because it's just really cool. But the he's, thing, and he's done multiple as well. It's not like he has. He's got this one silver token. He does in his three in one series. Yeah, it, yeah. Actually, Miss Mistborn has three different forms of like primary magic, doesn't it? There's like the, the burning of metals, which is the injecting uh, of them. There's one of the one of them you can't mention because it's a massive spoiler. So we, we'll we'll try and avoid talking okay, about. We'll, the, we, we'll talk about them. That we can talk about the main one, which you were talking about there, which is allomancy, which is yes. um, uh, people they're they're able to um, ingest specific metals and uh, burn and like burn them for a period of time inside their stomach and yeah, provokes different effects. And it's actually what I wanted to talk about because some of his world building actually ties into um, that magic system. So if you think about magic, right, uh, a great point I saw on a WebDM video when they were talking about, it was actually something similar. I think they might've been talking about like the military and fantasy worlds, but he, uh, Jim Davis, who uh, like myself is a big old history nerd. He pointed out that if you were to, if magic were a thing in our world, right? And most spellcasters can probably get up to like a third level spell. So that's the level where you can, where you're able to cast a fireball or a lightning or like not lightning bolts fourth, but like a fireball, like a big damaging. You keep going. I'll, I'll try but it's, it's, a, it's a big damaging area of effect spell, right? You will never have another military formation ever again after the first one is hit by a fireball. Ever, 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 ever. Because it, why would you, uh, clumping a bunch of, a bunch of men, together in a group to charge a city when there's a mage on the wall who's just going to go oh there's a big bunch of armed men there's a big bunch of burned corpses right now like yeah. you you would never have it and it's something it's not exactly the same but something um that sanderson has done with alamancy um it sounds like you i think you may have discovered what level of lightning bolt is in the time i was talking it's three uh, okay yeah yeah exactly but those big area of effects um high damage oh, spells damn, we're gonna have to stop our, our military formation to recharge at the enemy in a straight line <laughs> Uh, if you shot a lightning bolt from the side, you could take out an entire cavalry. Oh, no, true. But I was, yeah. Have you seen the new Mulan movie? <laughs> no, no. There's, there's a bit in it where in order to hide their numbers, they ride at this fortress, all the bad guys, but their cavalry is in a straight line like that. <laughs> and you only see one guy and all of a sudden there's like 17 guys. And I'm like, oh, it's so dumb. It's really dumb. <laughs> 
I feel so bad for people just listening to this audio because I literally couldn't speak with how stupid I found that for the last 30 seconds. <laughs> like, it's, oh. really, it's not great. <laughs> anyway, the, the reason I bring it up is because to give you, I, I'll get to, I'll get to why this works with verbal link, but basically if you're an allomancer, right, some people are, it's very rare that someone can, there are seven primary metals and it's very rare that some, you're, you normally you get one to two, right? In very exceptional cases, you get two. And most of the time, it's restricted to people of the noble bloodlines. Um, but every so often, a person is born, very like the Avatar in uh, that, that world, um, who can use all seven metals. And they are mistborn. People who can only use one or two are That's called... the name of the book. <laughs> yeah, uh, people who can only use one or two, they're called mistings, right? And in... Um, the, the capital city is called Lutheril and that's where the god emperor lives and rules from and oppresses everybody from and it's where most it's where pretty much all of the Alamancers are um, and what they well there's other cities as well that have Alamancers but in, in terms of the in terms of the main thrust of the story for Mistborn it, all, it mainly happens in Lutheril um, well for the first one anyway but uh, so these Mistings right they might only be able to use one or two um, so even if they're though they're only able to use one or two, and mistings are much more common as well. Like mistborn is pretty much exclusive to noble blood, but mistings are common. That, that can happen even among the regular populace, and people might not even know it because of trace elements of metal in the water they drink. So, there are gangs that will hire mistings who have specific skills they need. So, like for example, if you're an alamancer and you ingest pewter, you can burn pewter, and it will give you. Um, increased constitution, massive strength. You will tire way less often than other people. You will heal much faster and shrug off wounds that are that would absolutely just completely kill, like incapacitate or kill someone in a single hit. Um, and you, you're you. It basically gives you like an, an element of like it's super strength and super um, durability, basically, right? They're called pewter arms, and uh, they're hired basically as no, sorry, they're called thugs. Uh, the pewter arm is the technical term for them, but they're called thugs. Um, and they're hired in droves by gangs to be heavies because you only need a little bit of pewter. Pewter isn't a precious metal and it lasts for a long time. There's other ones. If you burn copper, you can hear better. You can see better. It increases all your senses. Um, I can't remember the slang name for them. I think they, oh no, yeah. Tin eyes. They're called tin eyes. Tin eyes. That's really yeah. good. I think that might be a set one, actually. That's someone who burns tin. Sorry, yeah. But uh, copper, there's another one for copper, and I can't remember it. And then there's people who can burn iron. Um, they can pull, or I, I'm going to get them mixed up, but iron is a pull, I think, and steel, steel is, a, is push. a push. Yeah. yeah. And so if, if there are mistings who can only burn iron, they're called pullers. There's, I think they might be pullers or launchers. But there's an, And then there's other ones that are like throwers. And that's because they can only push things away or pull things towards them. And like that's a level of like what we were saying earlier, um, the magic item shop being built into the lore of the world. This is where you have a very prevalent magic system in the world. So that's going to influence society around you and how that builds. And even down to criminality. Like if you and so you can see that in his world building where not only does he have a phenomenal uh, magic system in Adamancy that has so many uses, and I've only talked about a couple of them there, there's some really cool ones. Um so many uses, uh, but you can see how that um, permeates through all levels of society down. Um, and you can see even like straight urchins might discover that they're mistings because the water they're drinking from has like 
pewter in it or like it has might have lead in it or copper or something like that and they just happen to discover that they, they might not even know that they have an ability it might be that there's a, an unusually strong street tough and he never knows that he's a misting but there's traces of pewter in the water that he drinks because the he lives in the slums and his water isn't the like there's pewter pipes or something um yeah. and yeah because of that he's suddenly a, a big tough guy and like it's just the level of world building that i think is phenomenal like i would highly recommend brandon sanderson to anyone who's looking to is into the D &D or fantasy because he'll just provide you with so much inspiration for like things you can do and like, good examples of how to build a world build a society and particularly build a magic system does uh one a couple things so one, one thing um him giving nicknames to technical and nicknames and things i think super How'd you do it? It just if there was okay, I need I need like a a a normalize. I guess it normalizes. It can it just it makes things believable. Uh, like uh, uh, like how you call a bricklayer a bricky or an electrician a sparky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so like stuff like that really grounds worlds. I think mm -hmm. uh, when you when people have nicknames or things because it's like oh. It's just that like, you could just write one name, but what if people, the technical people call it this? Oh, but we just call them this because that's the colloquial yeah. for it. It's so good. Um, and then on top of that as well, uh, oh, is he, he also does Stormlight Archives. Well. He does Stormlight Archives, yes. Yeah. In terms of world building, he has a whole continent there where one side of the continent, the left-hand side, uh, is very much like our own world and it, it appears all the plants and animals and stuff appear the same in hit in the other side of the of the continent the eastern side um, that's a side that gets hit with storms these and these insanely destructive storms so often um and as a result a lot of his creatures like he has a lot of like land creatures that are like 12 foot tall hermit mm -hmm. crabs that burrow into the earth that are designed this way because they've grown up in an environment where the wind could sweep them away if they're not if they're not, if they don't hunker down they have trees and plant life in this region like the trees don't look like normal pine trees they they actually like almost like how uh, venus flytraps can move they stand upright until there's strong winds and then rather than standing upright and potentially getting broken or blown down they naturally like lean down themselves so they won't be torn up out of the ground mm -hmm. it's it's honestly i, I watched some videos on that i'm like this is some of the best world building i've ever seen the spren i like so i for my shame i read about half of the first book of way of kings which is the first book in um uh Stormlight. Stormlight. And I to put it down one day, and I think it's been about six months. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm planning to get back into that soon, but I have encountered the things you're talking about, those like big, mad, like crazy, hulked out armored bugs that they literally have to go on. Like they like rally armies to go and hunt these things in wastelands to stop them encroaching yep. on them. And like, and for, I think they use them for resources as well. Um, but yeah, it's just that, that level of world building is so amazing. And like, uh, even as little as I've gone into, way of kings i've seen that and like i do very much feel like there's a big open world that i just haven't explored yet and i know i remember the thing i actually wanted to talk about was the spren have you come across the spren i, I think that's not. what they're called so spren are like little magical spirits that kind of exist in everything and just show up when that thing happens and oh they're I, like a tringas in dnd yes yes and i've um i've only come like i said i'm only probably like halfway into the first half of the first book of the series but there's a character and he i can't remember his name right now but he's basically an academic who's traveling the world to document new types of spren and the first time you encounter him i think he might be arse naked on the street uh hung over as hell after a night of drinking incredibly heavy but you, you're like what's going on here and then he starts talking about all these spren and 
he you find out that he's an academic and the reason he is the way he is when you meet him is because he spent the previous night getting as drunk as humanly possible to try and discover inebriation spren or like drunk spren who only show up when th- people are so unbelievably drunk they like show up and are, are, are mostly invisible and just hang out and love being around someone who's drunk and there's like fire spren and air spren and earth spren and like it's all these things and he's yeah. he's making like his life mission to go around and document all these others or at least that's what it appears to me again caveat i'm halfway through the first half of the first book <laughs> oh, I, I haven't read any of them i haven't picked up any of those books but i just i watch a couple of lore videos on youtube because i'm like i want to know more about this world see if it would be something that i would be interested in and honestly it sounds really fucking cool you you uh, would be but yeah i heard about all the, the different animals and the way like the way like okay animals living in a certain environment or growing a certain way that seemed cool um it wouldn't have even crossed my mind to design my trees where they lie down to avoid getting blown up that is that's some honest to god genius stuff and i think that 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 could make for an incredibly unique and brilliant imagine being like in in a D world and you're walking through a forest and then uh, you're fighting something and all of a sudden the winds pick up and you're like, oh no, it's a storm coming. And all the forest lies down and all of a sudden you're not in the forest, you're just in an open area and there's a storm coming. Gonna suck for your wood elf archer in the tree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who, who suddenly like falls 20, 30 feet into the ground as this thing comes onto the, onto the <laughs> that'll, floor. That'll be a deck save there, buddy. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to not get crushed by a, a lying down tree. Yeah. Um, I think some uh, something that might be worthwhile talking about as well is uh, things you should probably pay particular attention to when you're first, like even just creating like the raw land masses. Um, so one thing I, I think is always uh, very, I think I actually start with quite commonly, uh, rivers. Rivers and... River, rivers don't split. Rivers do not split. Okay, you, you, it seems like you may be inordinately passionate about this for some reason. Would you like to explain? No, it's just a, it's a thing. Like you, and I, I like maps. Um, okay. I like maps, and uh, I see it in a lot of maps online. Um, but if you ever watch any uh, any cartography drawing channels or anything like that, um, uh, every every single person will tell you if they if you ever look like oh top ten tips to make your maps better, they will always include that rivers do not split. Uh, naturally, rivers, the water goes with the path of least resistance, which is always going to be typically one path. It's incredibly uncommon for rivers to split. Mm, I think people there are messing up like tributaries and stuff like that. Like, in, yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah. Things, rivers flow into one another and form larger rivers, Absolutely. but they don't, they rarely, I mean, extremely rarely break into two separate rivers. And the, the reason I mention um, rivers and, and stuff like that, particularly when you're first blocking out your landmasses, because you were saying that one of the first things you do is you do the landmasses and then you'll decide where you want to put cities and stuff like that. Yeah, because I've, in, in my head, I'm like, well, the world forms, then people settle it. That's mm-hmm. the natural way of things. So in my head, it makes sense to do it that way. Absolutely. And if you look at a, like normal human history, uh, like like regular human history rather than fancy human history, um, most cultures or like any big cities, like if you geography, just look around. A lot of big cities are based on rivers. There's a reason yeah. for that. Trade, ease of access. Yeah, trade, ease of access. Uh, If you've uh, land or sea, yeah, defense. If you've a river or a sea there, you have a fresh supply of food, even when your crops fail. Um, You've ways to water your crops if you build in a river basin. Um, You've, although that's not necessarily a great idea when flooding comes. Um, But like, if you're near. That was the Nile, though. Like, the people relied on the Nile flooding every single year so that, Mm -hmm. uh, like, Egyptians could have their crops grow. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Because when it floods, it deposits all. Oh, my 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 secondary school geography is coming back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so leave, like, leave and search geography. <laughs> water sources are super, super, super important. Um, there's also a thing as well. Um, 
so I was uh, it's, I can't remember who, who said it it was someone that explained it to me this is going to be a very Irish reference, right? But I was listening to the Blind Boy podcast, and he was talking. <laughs> he was talking about, um, I believe it might have been the foreskin of a saint. Were three churches in Europe at one point during the Middle Ages, each claimed to have like the foreskin of a specific saint, and uh, he was talking about like I, I know you might. It's like why are you talking about this? But the reason that these things were important is because if somewhere like that has a holy relic. Right, it doesn't have to be a horrible like tan foreskin of a saint. It could be like if you want to be cool about it, like it could be like the a, the broken blade of the god of war or something like that, or like a shard of his blade. And let's, like, let's stick with foreskin. I'm I'm, I'm digging it. <laughs> let's. Uh, can someone just like take that out of context, please, and just cut that? <laughs> I purposely said I'm digging it instead of no, no, no. I like foreskin. <laughs> yeah, but you did also just say the previous sentence, so it's fine. Um, but the reason I bring up the podcast is he was saying the reason why these churches. Uh, because eventually at one point the Vatican was just like, no, none of you have it. They're all fake. This is ridiculous. Right? And there was all foreskin doesn't exist. <laughs> there is no foreskin. It can't hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's it's try that, it's, that, it's that podcast now. <laughs> shall, shall shall we just try and roll back to a regular topic? <laughs> No, sorry, please go on. Keep talking about it. Okay, so that went entirely over your head. Our listeners want to know about foreskin, Martin. I'm going to say they don't. <laughs> you know, Comment but... down below and let us know how much you want to hear about foreskin. <laughs> or Tweet don't. Martin and tell him all about your foreskin. Or definitely don't do that. Um, <laughs> but the reason I bring it up is because the reason these churches fought so hard is because when they had a holy relic, people came there to see it. Um, and stuff that started off as a really small town suddenly if you have a relic that town suddenly you have a you might have a cathedral then you have a bishop next thing you have a city that city builds up there you're the capital city of the area and you're an extremely wealthy city but a lot of influence right and the reason i bring it up for D D worlds is relics and holy artifacts and things of great power are really common tropes in fantasy and in D&D. So if you want to put in like an artifact or like a holy city that houses this artifact, that place is naturally going to be a center of probably like trade, travel and commerce. Yeah, absolutely. In addition. Um, yeah, I, th I think having having collections of magic items or having like, uh, having like maybe like even like a wizard or something like that that lives in, or like a wizard king mm -hmm. uh, and like they have a staff of like insane magical magical power and then they pass it down along their bloodline so each new queen king prince princess that that exists in this area like oh oh i hit my microphone again god damn it um the the black staff in Waterdeep in yes D &D. brought it back brought it back to D, &D. um but there the black staff is uh, is an inherited position it's not i don't think it's um a bloodline thing mm -hmm. uh but the black staff is someone who is elected and when that person is elected they get the black staff the, the wizard staff of the previous um black staff of the city and they're kind of like uh i'd have to double check my, my lore on this is fairly light uh but i think they're just like an appointed um magical representative of the city um but yeah so stuff like that and like people you know mages might come there come to a city like that because they want to study under or meet or discuss things mm -hmm. with this powerful uh knowledgeable uh, arcane person yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's actually, you've rather beautifully segued into another thing I wanted to say. It was uh, important places. Like, decide if you're going to build a culture, right? What I, what I kind of try and do when I'm blocking out a world is I'll, I'll 
think of like maybe like a, a, a real world culture that I want to either emulate or take inspiration from. And then I'll go, right, government, military, political beliefs, religious beliefs, and then notable features. And that's how I very quickly rough out a world. Because um, you can kind of broad strokes build a country from that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think I use a similar a similar breakdown of, of things I want to cover. Um, whenever I'm writing on World Anvil, um, I will follow. I, I won't name them. I won't blatantly call them government, military. I, I use... Oh, <laughs> I, Sorry, I, re- I refer... Those headings are I actually use for like um, when I'm just rough and stuff. I can actually show you here because I've got one of them with me. But uh, you probably won't be able to see it. But I have... This is the post that I wrote real quick when I was building out. Um, I have a Greek slash Roman inspired area called Pantamilud. And my players haven't gone there yet. But when I expanded my world, it was like a, a part of the lower expansion. So like when I was, I had decided the culture, what I wanted to emulate, but I hadn't really decided on anything in there. I had drawn the land mass, but I hadn't put anything in there. So I was kind of, while I was on a break, just roughing stuff out. So straight away, um, what I, I did exactly, I said government, military, primary religion, um, notable features, and then terrain. Um, so I have so this list Pontimelod because it is heavily based on Greek and Roman. They have a Senate led by a Primus. Uh, they're military then. They have a powerful navy because they're an island nation, um, and they're known for their heavy infantry. Uh, again, taking inspiration from the Greeks this time with the Greek hoplites. Um, primary religion then. Um, so in my work, I, I have a custom pantheon, and other places adhere to it. Some places don't. This place does adhere to it. Um, so in this place, the goddess Intigra, which is the goddess of uh, justice is their patron saint um and then for notable features they have a senate um there's like a, a parthenon like building um there's they have an oracle uh, and then they do like chariot racing as well um, and then for terrain i have like rocky north verdant south um, and then banking families in the east and the west land is set aside for soldiers um because in the roman army if you served your time in the Roman army, survived all your campaigns and you were sent away, you would be given a salary. Oh, sorry, that was when, sorry, that was your, your salary in the Roman army was salt. And that's where we get the word, the word salary from. But uh, you would be given lands if you were successful um, to take. And uh, so I liked the idea. I just wanted to kind of put that in there in some way. So I thought it'd be a cool idea if they had like a section of the country with like land masses that are just set aside as like essentially like gifts of land for retired soldiers uh yeah absolutely and like that's I, like i said i follow a very similar structure when i'm building things um i like that you went with the uh, I, I like also i'm not surprised when you when you do something greek based uh in your in your dnd world i know you're a big fan of the greek culture i am so and i mythology. about two months ago i did read like the entire percy jackson and the olympians series so that yeah, may yeah, have had an influence go, yeah <laughs> um did you you did you you the geography in leaving cert uh history <laughs> history uh oh yeah well that's okay well you could have done, you could have done geography as well yeah um, but- I was Did a you nerd. ever cover? Um, so there's a great video, uh, and it rem- this reminded me. I watch it. You okay? Oh, sorry, Siri just decided to talk to me. Um, there's this great video uh, that really caught me off guard. Uh, this is a great video by um, Dale Kingsville at mm. Monarch Factory on uh, on YouTube, um, and she did a video about how she kind of built out a town and stuff like that. And she uses a similar kind of thing where she has okay, these are my headlines. What do, I, what do I know about this town based on each of these things? If you did Leaving Cert, I, I want to say it's Leaving Cert History or, or Geography, sorry. Um, there's a, a breakdown of things and it's uh, it's social, political, economic, religious, military. Oh. That's spelled <laughs> sperm if you make that <laughs> And that's what we all really? thought was so funny when we were 17 as well. Um, 
<laughs> we spent we spent most of our time in geography class laughing about that. The, the teacher was literally like, "Okay, so she learned it out, and she goes, uh, and then she goes, so the acronym is, and she's like, right, just get it out, get the laugh out, come on." And then we laugh for about ten minutes. She's like, "Right, we good?" And we're like, "Yeah, yeah, we're good. Okay, let's move on." Uh, no, I did yeah, not so, do leave insert geography. <laughs> <laughs> Some people call it MERPS as well. But let's be honest, you will not remember MERPS, but you'll remember when your geography teacher starts calling out sperm at the top of the classroom. Oh, God, <laughs> man. What is this it, podcast anymore? <laughs> <laughs> the title of this podcast will be Sperm and Foreskin. No, no, it will not. <laughs> anyway, D and D. Yeah, but no, it's it, it is a great system to go by. Though it's it's, it's social, uh, political, economic, religious, military, and those are five really really good topics to look at when you're trying to build a world. Um, like for example, just to take one of uh, my world bins, let's have it open here. Uh, so I, the kingdom you guys are currently in my world is called Redalia. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a French motif. Um, I talked about it before, but um, in Redalia a lot pretty much nothing happens that isn't in some way linked to reputation reputation is everything in redalia you know mm-hmm. um who what people think of you where you kind of stand socially uh people always trying to get the leg up on one another you know and and, and uh be like oh we're both musicians but i want to be a better musician and you'll you'll play dirty sometimes to be that better musician um and it's all about the the aristocracy and the, the hierarchy that it forms uh and when I was looking at that, that that's my social. I looked, so the first thing I looked at was social. And I said, right, okay, well, how does the social structure, what do people care about in a social thing? They care about what other people think of them. Uh, they care about what their position is, what their reputation. Uh, and there's so much of that that, that plays in there. Uh, I have like noble houses that very much play a, almost like a Game of Thrones. It's like a high school Game of Thrones. It's mm. like they're always talking shit about one another and you know making up things and oh did you hear about such and such he did this and blah blah and they're trying to sully each other uh and like wading and navigating through that is a big part of the the social order you guys haven't seen a huge amount of it yet because you haven't gotten into the deeper political stuff which is hilarious because we're knights of Vidalia now (laughs) you're knights but you you were you were knighted in a in a small town where there was only one political figure Uh, whereas if you go to Arlay um I have like I said, it's a French motif. So I have five uh, noble houses in uh, the true noble houses. There are others, but these are like the, these are your Starks, Lannisters, uh, um, Baratheon level houses. Um, and there is the, the Renoir house. Uh, they are, they are basically the royal family. Um, they, they oversee everything. There's the, the Castoirs, um, who are uh, the, they, let's double check my own notes here. Oh yeah, so they're like the bankers. They control the economy. Uh, they show they're, they're a political body that actually owns all the banks <laughs> in the country. Yeah, it's super dodge. Um, but they're, they're the castoirs, um, and they build banks. Uh, they, they they watch the economy. They make sure things get paid for by the government and stuff like that. Uh, I have the the Lusant, House Lusant. Uh, they're like builders and designers. They any roads, fortresses, walls, cities that get built, they get built because of these guys. Uh, I have the Salvaro house. Uh, they're like the the magic practitioner house. Um, and they kind of like advise the king slash queen of magical ongoings and stuff like that. And they also act as an envoy to Temurai as well. You've no idea how it is not to take notes. <laughs> I know, yeah, from the game. Uh, and then there's also the, the house Valdrin as well. And the Valdrins are the... They're basically like a military dynasty. Um, cool. If like most... It'd be, it'd be very, very strange for you to make it to the rank of general 
and not be either directly part of this family or married to a member of this family. Um, it's like how uh, an exaggerated version, but you know how like um, members of the royal family in like Britain and stuff can act as as uh, I don't know if they're quite generals, but they can be like captains and they'll be officers just by by order of their nobility. They're yeah. made officers immediately. Um, happened in uh, not that I don't know if many people watch this. Um, Downton Abbey. Uh, the the lord um, who owns the who owns Downton, he was called into action uh, during World War One, and he was made to be an officer. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any particular experience in war, but because he's a noble, he's expected to stand yeah, up. Yeah, it's an it's that's a that's a historical hang up from uh, feudalism, where uh, yeah. all the lords be the vassal of the king, and because you're the vassal of the king, you were expected to be be able to raise a, raise an army. Um, yeah, when the exactly. king required war so you would be an officer because you raised an army and brought that and then all of the lord's armies would combine into the king's army yeah and that's exactly what this is their their house is very much like prominent captains uh military officers and, and strategists and generals and stuff like that would would very often be again either part of this family in the direct bloodline or married into this family and it's it's very much how you work your way up but i mean that's the social order it's about mm. reputation it's about you know uh it's about knowing no, it's, a, it's who you know, not what you know, kind of. Yeah. Um, and that's not um, even really fancy. Like, what you're doing there is just building on, like, real life and just add, adding magic to it. Uh, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. I don't mean that is in any way, dis- <laughs> in any way disparaging either. I, what I mean is, like, you've created a magical world that also reflects real-world realities. Oh, yeah, totally. And, like, I, I think about when I was doing this, a lot of me was thinking about how reputation matters to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. Like, when you're when you're a politician, well, a politician maybe, or, like, an, a lord or whatever, sometimes, like, I, I also have this, um, this split in how people view um, nobility, because there's different types of nobility. Some people are, like, what I call old bloods, uh, or, uh, what's it, old bloods? I had a couple different names. These. It's either... Uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was they were old bloods, and they're like they're old money, basically. They're people who have been wealthy families for hundreds of years, and they have long histories and reputations. And then you also have gold bloods, and the gold bloods are people who are wealthy by or who are noble because of their wealth. They maybe only be you know maybe oh, it was only okay. their father or them that that raised a fortune, um, or like mer- merchants that bought their way into nobility through sheer wealth amassed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's total gatekeeping with the old. Uh, the old bloods don't have it. They're like, yeah, but you're, you're new money. Mm. We don't associate oh, yeah. with you because you're new money. Um, even though they're just as powerful, they, ha- they have just as much sway because of the vast uh, properties and, and people they control and employ. Um, and it, there's a whole thing, again, I've talked about this before, but the, how tradition versus uh, innovation is a thing in my world. And it's someone who was born with uh, noble power versus someone who acquired it because of vast fortune. Um and they bought heads uh, an awful yeah, lot. That actually, that that has like proper historical parallels as well. Um, as soon as merchants became a thing in the Middle Ages, we're like really started to pick up and like ships moving and like trade routes opening and stuff. Families that were able to have enough money to essentially be nobles, but still work the trade were very much looked down, looked down upon. Like if you had to, if you were a noble and you had to work to have your fortune, yeah no no every everyone else just is just lived long enough and their and their and their great great granddad killed some dude for his fortune and now it became his fortune and now it's their fortune they don't have to lift I, the finger i kind of pu- i kind of pulled it a little bit from uh from the great gatsby oh he's okay. obviously a very wealthy person but he doesn't have a history mm. um he's just he's kind of sprung up out of nowhere and people are fascinated by him but also very wary because we're like well, we, we don't know his family who where's he from what's his what's his business how, how does he have this fortune that becomes a, a whole a whole thing where people don't necessarily trust him yeah. in some regards because he's just nobody and we don't know anything about him. 
No, I, I love that uh, that you put that in as like a whole societal thing. That's that's really right. like that's that's a very much a, colo- a colonial mm. American thing. And like they joke about it in Acquisition Incorporated as well. See, I'm always bringing it back to D and D. Um, they joke about it in Acquisition Incorporated. Oh, by the way, I just remembered it was Christ's foreskin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good, good. That'll really feed into the episode title. Um, <laughs> um, so it's I've completely lost my train of thought. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about Acquisition Inc. Acquisition Inc. Colonial, yes. So Jim Dark Magic, who is um, uh, of the Water Deep Dark that. Magics. Well, no, that's the thing. They 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 call him whatever people meet him, or at least they did early on in the earlier episodes. He'd be like, "Oh, I'm Jim Dark Magic," and they go, "Oh, of the New England Dark Magics," and that was the running joke because it's like, "Oh, he's obviously got a prominent known family." Um, and it's it's that kind of thing where like reputation is very much everything uh, yeah. in Redalia, and that feeds into the first of the five letters in the acronym, which is S, um, which is social. <laughs> Sorry, I went on a really long ramble about just social there, but I, you're, I think you're it's, it, you know, it's, I, I spent a lot of time working out because social can be kind of tricky to think how do people think. You know? I was going to say social is probably the hardest to work out though, because like the rest are like large scale kind of um, like. Establishment, yeah, it's, it's establishment things. Yeah. It's the mechanisms of state. It's your government, your religious beliefs, stuff like. I mean, and a lot of that you yeah. can kind of sectionalize, and you can be like, okay, here this is popular, here this is popular, here this is popular. Yeah. The government, you can just be like, oh, they're an autocratic government. Everything is centralized. Everything is spread out. Maybe there's it's a series of broken kingdoms. You can kind of break that all down very quickly and very easily, and just make a decision. And there's a template to follow. But with society, you have to like actually pay attention to what goes on if you want to base it on the real world and you have to like build layers to this and other elements and it's not and with society then you get you get every other thing influences society matt colville has this really good stream he did once where he i cannot remember the name of the country something with an or um and he was designing their their actually he was designing their gods but he was designing their gods based on their their mores and, and folkways as well as their um Oh, what you call them? What things? Things that are like uh, taboo and things that are like except expected of you and stuff like that. Oh, okay, there's a term for it. Um, I'm blanking on it now. But it was really, really interesting because he was basing the gods on that because, of course, they would have gods based on things they put value and stock into. And he designed these people, and they have a lot of value in, uh, in being sailors because they're they're coastal. They're in like a Mediterranean style uh, mm-hmm. culture, like almost Italian ish, you know. Um, and as a result, then. They they put a lot of stock into that. Therefore, that informs them. You know, if you're a sailor, ooh, that's a very prominent. That's it's like being I don't know. Do you ever like see like television shows when they're like, ooh, that person's a doctor. Oh, very <laughs> nice. You know, and it's very it's very impressive. This is the same with like being a sailor in this society. It's like, oh, they yeah. sail. Wow, they have a boat. That's really good, and that means a lot to these people. They also had another thing where they're very passionate people. Um, so. They and they'll defend their honor and stuff like that very quickly. So like you could be in a fight and if someone disrespects you, it's knives drawn at a moment's notice. And this can seem insane to people who are not from this country, but it's it's perfectly reasonable within their society to draw swords and potentially stab someone just for calling you a name. <laughs> and that that's really good social building, I think. It, like it's it's hard to see outside of what is normal human behavior. Again. Uh, political, economic, religious, military, these are all organizations and things you can even find in the D&D books, but the D&D books can't necessarily tell you how to, how people would think mm-hmm. in uh, in a country based on what they put value in. Yeah, um, what you're saying there actually reminds me a lot of um, 
it's something I didn't mention when we were talking about people who do really good world being. And literally, I had him down on like a list when I jotted out like ideas of people who do it well. He's actually one of my one of my favorite authors is Brent Weeks. I've talked about him before in the podcast. Um, but in his first series, the Night Angel trilogy, there is like an antagonist, like a villain nation that's ruled by a god king, right? And they're called Kalidor, and they're like a they're a northern. They're like a northern, basically kind of like your northern kind of barbarian tribe almost. But what it is, is they're, the god they worship is called Kali. And uh, she's basically like a god of pain and suffering. And she allows them to... So in this world, magic exists in people called the talent. And it just naturally occurs within you. It, can, it has a variety of, of uh, different functions and ways to do it. But it does take time to learn. And it, the amount you have can very much vary. Um, in Kalidor, because they worship Kali, she gives them a, another source of magic called the Ver. And it basically looks like really messed up, uh, like living tribal tattoos that live on, on top of the skin. And, and Kalidorians are normally very pale because they're from a wintry area. So it shows up really starkly against them. And it actually like breaks through the skin and pierces through. And what it does is it embeds itself in their talent like a parasite. And it will give them more power easier than the talent will. And... The reason I bring it up is because a part of their, their the world building he does is that before before like Caledorians do something like terribly cruel or horrible or inflict pain or or worship um or, or do something that would be like considered worship of this goddess Kali who is like a goddess of like pain and suffering, um they repeat a prayer and the prayer goes Kali Ras Kali Vos in May. And it basically means like, I can't, I, weirdly enough, I can remember the prayer perfectly, but not its translation. Not the English um, translation. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it, it, but the translation is something like, Kali lives, Kali, uh, Kali, I do this for you, Kali lives, Kali come rest in me. And what that does is everyone in that world who can use magic has a thing in them called the Glore Verdon. And it's basically like a repository where you absorb sunlight through your eyes and that power, that fills up the Glore Verdon and lets you use magic. And what that does is when they say that prayer, that prayer empties a teeny tiny bit of that out into Kali, and Kali absorbs that. But when there's millions of people doing that on the regular, what you have now is an ocean of magical power that allows them yeah. to be more powerful than people who just use the talent. That's really interesting. It's very yeah, cool. Uh, as soon as you start talking about the the living tribal tattoos, that is all about like Venom and Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, but I just love that element of like, it's like they don't know that that's what they're doing. They don't feel anything happen. They they're, they've been told by their god that that's a prayer that you will hear, and they're praising her. But what they don't know is they're actually also powering her. Yeah, I I, I love the idea of gods being directly proportional to the amount of worshippers they have. I, I have yes. a little bit of that in my world. Uh, if you've read American gods, that's kind of the that's kind of the I main thrust. Yeah, like Odin is is weak now because people don't worship anymore. But that's a whole. Oh, whole yeah. thing in American Gods, yeah, which is, again, it's super, super cool, and I love the Actually, idea American Gods would be a fucking great book to read for inspiration for our ability. Absolutely. And, like, they have an interesting thing, because there's gods of, like, media and stuff like that, because that's oh, what people worship so, now. Oh, if we don't so agree to like, it, we the, love it, and therefore a god will just manifest surrounded by that thing. I'd have an idea to make a, a bureaucracy demon god in my world, or a devil god, I should say. Aren't the, the like, hells are bureaucracy itself as they're written, though, aren't they? Yeah, but this guy would literally run grey buildings where he enslaves people in, like, office jobs. <laughs> uh, yeah, his name is Ophir Team Yay. <laughs> it's, uh, it was an idea I had a while back, but, like, I love that idea that gods can manifest based on... And, again, that kind of plays into what I said a minute ago about uh, Colville, Matt Colville, writing gods based on what people put value and put stock mm -hmm. into. 
Um, because again, why would you have a god of the forge if you don't think that being a craftsman is a really worth worthwhile yeah. thing? You know, I did the same with uh, with my current uh, Church of the Dawnlight for which is a church within Redalia. Um, everything they have, like the gods they have, are based on certain things. Like there's a god of like homesteads and family and mm -hmm. respite, um, but also of like building because they, it's about having a home and having a nice comfortable family life but also building walls around yourself and defending it from danger yeah. you know yeah like religion would tell you that people are a reflection of their gods but when you look at it really gods are a reflection of the people who create them yeah absolutely what what you what you put value when you manifest as as a god even Again, completely subconsciously gods is a fantastic uh even just a framework of american gods is a great a great jumping off point there absolutely man uh, but martin yes i'm afraid that's all the time we have for today no, that actually did fly. Uh, that felt like five minutes, man. I had a blast. <laughs> that was great. Uh, I, lo I love, I love, um, bouncing world building ideas off you because I think again we talked about this before. We have really different methods in how we do it, but also we have very different ideas. Our worlds are totally different, like oh, in yeah. terms of theme and and, and tone. Um, and yeah, it, it's just, it's cool to bounce ideas off one another as well. Uh, we talked about it a little bit last week. Again, do check out our previous episode of the podcast. We talked about some really cool world building stuff surrounding uh, money and the commerce and stuff like and that. And what you can do with it, yeah. And what you can do with it. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's going to be us for this week. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's pretty much it, guys. Um, you can follow our podcast on Twitter at, at Mike Flair's Pod. It's boom right down in the far corner there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at so sorry it's over and on Twitch at uh, twitch.tv slash merch. Um, I've not been streaming too much often because I've had some issues with my software. Hoping to fix that soon. Um, Connor, where can people find you on the internet? People can find me on Twitter at zero point Connor Z E R O P O N T C O N O R one N very important and also you can find me here every Friday on the Mike Flares podcast. Indeed, indeed, indeed. And I'm happy to have you here with me every Friday too. On both YouTube and Spotify. And on both YouTube and Spotify. Indeed, indeed, indeed. All right, folks, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you this time next week on another episode of the Mike Flares podcast. Goodbye. Later, folks. Bye-bye.